0: You're listening to Startups for Good, where we explore high growth and high values ventures. I am your host, Miles Lassiter, three-time founder-turned investor. Join us to hear stories of entrepreneurs. Join us to be inspired to be a founder. Or to work for a startup. Join us to be part of a community that believes startups can be a force for good. Welcome to Startups for Good. I'm your host, Miles Lassiter. In today's episode, I speak with Gary Cooper. Dr. Gary Cooper is the co-founder and CEO of Reaply, a Chicago-based tech company that enables Fortune 500 companies, government agencies, and universities to better visualize, quantify, and utilize their physical resources. He also serves on the board of directors of P33 Chicago, 1871, which is like an incubator uh, startup space in Chicago, the faculty of Northwestern University, and the investor team at Long Jump Ventures, of which he's the founding partner. Alas, we don't talk too much about his investing work. Previously, Dr. Cooper facilitated supply chain and performance improvement for enterprise businesses, Ernst & Young. As a result of his work, Dr. Cooper has received recognition of Forbes Next 1000, Chicago Magazine's The New Power 30, Crane's 40 Under 40 list, a Scholar at Google for Entrepreneurs, and Dr. Cooper has published in High Impact, peer-reviewed international journals and holds a U.S. patent. It just goes on and on. He holds PhD from Northwestern University, Certificate in Management from Kellogg School of uh, Management and BS and BA from Indiana University. Ripley has over 36 employees, over 30 customers, including those mentioned on the website like Stanford, MIT, University of Chicago, Google, U.S. Air Force. I think he said revenue has grown 2,000% year over year. By the end of 2021, they're headed for a $5 million revenue run rate. They've raised over $10 million, including a Series A led by High Alpha with participation from Morgan Stanley, Rise of the Rest, and Salesforce. We discuss similarities between being a research scientist and a startup founder, launching a new product at the beginning of COVID, his vision of the circular economy, and how to move past no in fundraising. I think you'll enjoy this a lot, so stay tuned. Gary, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. So I'd love to start by asking you, what are the key similarities between being a startup founder and a research scientist?
1: There there are several. Such a great question. So, you know, one that comes to mind is the independentness of the journey. I, in both cases, kind of going into my Doctoral work at Northwestern and starting REAPLY, you know, you have a sense of community, you have a sense that there's a team that's going to support me, and those things are true. But really, when you're in the trenches, the hard decisions do we go left or right, up or down? Um, what sense does this make? When you're on the frontier of anything, it's lonely. You have to make decisions that affect potentially years to come of outcomes. And I think being in research science and, you know, growing a, a venture back high-growth company is being on the frontier. So I think that's for sure one. And I think maybe two, you have to have wonder and be open. You know, when you start a, a, a PhD-like thesis or any kind of long research project in a startup, I think you have a vision and a hypothesis of what might happen. But you have to be open to the data that hits you in the face as you start experimenting along the way and be able to ably change course so i would say as starters it's an independent journey even though you you know you are stood up by community and two it's hypothesis driven and you have to be open to when your hypothesis gets proven or when it, it is not
0: so how do you make those tough decisions if you're saying you're making those calls on your own in the end, right? How, how do you do it?
1: So I do it in a kind of couple moves. So the first move is one: I have to have, I have to be grounded in the information necessary to even make the decision. So I try never to make any decision hard or not if I actually don't know the, the kind of frame or the the universe that it exists in. So I need to get grounded in the information. The second is. It's, there's very likely someone I know who knows more about this than I do, right? So you try to build a network, whether that network be your, your actual team, whether that be your investors, whether that be your advisors, whether it be your, your mother, your father, or your friends, or anywhere in between, is you, I then go and say, okay, here's what I know. Who knows more than I know? And then I try to pick their brains. And then third, I always think of the, does this make sense? Like So as I've heard some feedback from people who I think are more able and now I've learned some things, if I write it down on a piece of paper, does it make logical sense? And then fourth and final for me at Reaply, something I always do with hard decisions, is I think about our, our seven core values. Does this align with things that we value at our core in the company? And then, you know, then I make the decision and no regrets thereafter.
0: Yeah, I think sometimes people think that values in a company are just for show. But mm-hmm. as a founder, in many cases, I have turned to them when it's time Absolutely. to make a tough decision. And it's been really helpful to Absolutely. know that I'm making a decision in line with what I've said all along. And it's not just a momentary lapse. Absolutely. Uh, you no, know, and I think it keeps you really grounded. The other part you said about the the similarities, you mentioned experiments and hypothesis driven, Mm -hmm. How how do you design or think about experiments differently in a startup?
1: You know, I don't think of them so differently, actually. I mean, obviously in a, in a research laboratory, the way that you generate a hypothesis is kind of two part, right? So there's available data publications, papers, that you'll go and read, and you become an expert in the current state of the art, if you will. And then you formulate where you think a gap in the understanding is. And then you go try to do an experiment that teases at some part of that gap. Th- that you generally can do pretty straightforwardly, depending on the type of experiment. It's in my mind, it's hard to do that with an actual company, with actual humans that you actually employ with investor money and. Users and things, right? So it needs to be a little bit more structured because you can't just go like, "Well, I had this idea. I woke up this morning, read a couple articles, and now I'll go experiment." So there's a little bit more rigor, I would say, that you are is required in the startup world because the data typically isn't as polished and professionalized as it is in the lab. But I would say, after you've gotten a good basis of of data to work with. Really, it's pretty similar. You write it down, you say, this is what we believe. If we do X, if we put $1 here, $3 will come out there. If we go this way, users will go that way, right? You, you come up with a plan, you understand why you think that, and you have controls built in and say, okay, I, I know that this, is, uh, this data is correlative to my hypothesis because we have some control in the experiment itself. And then you just go do the data. You go through the experiments, sorry. And when you, when you do these things, I think it's super important to do immediately post-mortems. You collect the data, the results, and immediately form what just happened. Not three weeks from now, like that day or the next morning. And we do that a lot at Ripley. We think, okay, we just had a board meeting. We just uh, launched a new customer. We just had a press conference. How did it go? What could we have done better? Let's go back and think of what our pre-mortem, aka our hypothesis was, and how it matches on the back end. And it just helps you incrementally get better each time you do something. And then eventually it becomes the way in which everyone, the whole company thinks, which is exciting, I think. I mean, I think most businesses want hypothesis-driven decision-making criteria and, and experimentation. And so that's something that I think I'm pretty much a stickler for that briefly. I always try to tease out what are we doing? Why are we doing it? How are we going to measure if it's, if it went well and, and hopefully that, you know, continues as we grow.
0: Yeah. I think getting real world data and being in reality, assessing it quickly, that, that all makes a lot of sense to me, but in a case where, there isn't necessarily data and other people haven't Mm -hmm. necessarily been there before. Mm -hmm. Like for example, your decision to essentially launch a new product and Mm -hmm. really push hard into the pandemic Mm -hmm. in the early days of the pandemic. Like how did you make that decision?
1: That was a tough one because I think we were probably a startup of around 10 people, uh, eight to 10 people at the time. And we had just finished a seed round that I quite frankly was raising for three years. And, you know, we had a plan and then and you raise the money on the plan and then boom, COVID hits. And you're unsure, there's no playbook for operating a 10-person company in a pandemic. So you're unsure of like, okay, where do I go? I see every VC talking about, you know, writing blogs and position papers, talking about batting down the hatches, stop spending, you know, decrease your run rate. And then I'm looking at it, you know, like, well... I don't want to do that. Why why should we do that? You know, you know, there's no data about how to operate now. And we had just fundraised and we were uniquely positioned, even though the use case around COVID and PPE was very different than than what we had been serving prior, our technology as a platform, like the, the guts of it, were very well positioned to help our community. So then, you know, I did exactly what I said in the opening. So I talk with every single person on our, our, our team individually about what they thought about us uh, kind of getting into this. I then went and spoke to our people, our community, people who know about me, you know, a couple of prof- uh, uh, CS professors at Northwestern, some supply chain leaders in healthcare, care and, and some of the biggest hospitals in the state of Illinois, people in the governor's office. I formulate my own then hypothesis. And then importantly, I went to our values and our sixth core of our seven core values at Reapley, the sixth one says, we are stewards of our community. That was the end for me. We got to do this project, whether we're getting paid or not. And we did. Didn't, didn't think about it thereafter.
0: Yeah. So tell us a little bit more about what you launched there and how it turned out.
1: Again, for the audience, we are a very baby early stage company, technology company here in Chicago. So, you know, didn't have a lot of pool, didn't have a lot of horsepower power, if you will, but very passionate and very talented team. Just kind of giving you the background. So the thing that we did in COVID, um, and our technology normally helps match materials that are in excess um, in the professional world to people who need those same materials. So we had been applying that use case internally between researchers at a university with researchers at the same university who could need those, you know, need things in surplus. So we were used to moving things around with our technology because where they could go. I looked up at the television screen and I see two things that will never, I'll never forget. One is I saw nurses and doctors wearing hefty trash bags because they didn't have the right PPE gowns to protect themselves because that supply global supply chain had broken down. And then second, I, saw, I heard and saw the governor of New York basically putting out a call to say, hey, if you got ventilators, if you got PPE in the state of New York, call this number and pointing on the screen. And I thought, whoa, we can do something better with our technology that's meant to make those connections. So we, we did two things. The first is we launched a project essentially on our own. But with the the help and counsel of Northwestern's computer science department, shout out to Professor Christian Hammond his team. But we launched something called the Emergency Response Exchange or ERX. And what that was meant to do, instead of Illinois at least, is connect people who might have surplus PPE or any kind of medical equipment like tattoo artists or dentists or veterinarians or anyone like that who might not be using it because they were in their homes because of the lockdown and then and then have that material move to the clinical front lines to the nurses and the doctors and the caretakers who needed it for sa- their own personal safety as, as well as patient safety that project led into a, a more prescribed project for mayor that we did in concert with World Business Chicago and mayor Lightfoot here in Chicago and uh, that was called the Chicago PPE market. And the Chicago PPE market was a version of ERX where this, the mayor's office had corralled and, and, and found about 50 vendors, local vendors of PPE, hand sanitizer. In, in this case, it was three categories, hand sanitizer, face mask, and protective barriers that the mayor was going to require small businesses and nonprofits or every business to have a point porn safe reopening last summer. And... They thought, well, my goodness, we can't require these businesses to have this if Amazon has eight, you know, eight week wait times, if they can't find them at the Costco's, and at the Walgreens, and at the CVS's of the world. Meanwhile, there are local people who are making hand sanitizer, face masks, and protective barriers that no one knew about. So we use our technology to almost be like a local marketplace, a local, a local marketplace between businesses who had and businesses who need. And, you know, very interestingly enough, those 50 vendors were able to move 200,000 pieces of PPE through our technology over the 60 days that we that we ran that project for Mayor Lightfoot. So those are some of the things that we did in, in kind of the heart of the crisis last year.
0: And when you started on this project, you didn't know that it was going to result in any new business for you, right?
1: No, a z- zero. I mean, we were, we got the call from Mayor Lifefoot's office, let's say, on a Monday, and we were launching a completely new product the next Wednesday. So there were many all-nighters pulled in by those eight to t- 10 people who were working for our company at the time. So it, it, there, was, there was no product vision here, right? Th- this was not like, oh, and then we'll do. <laughs> this was just like, hey, it feels like this is something we can help with. It feels like this is a, a way for us to live our values. And selfishly, this is our community, right? Like I know people at Northwestern Memorial. I'm a faculty member at Northwestern University. I, I, you know, care about the community and we care about the community that we operate in. And so it really wasn't like, and thus this will help us, you know, raise a around or there's this new product thing we'll learn about or we can add new business lines. It was just like this seems right let's just do it we're agile enough we're small enough where we can actually do this and deliver it and you know we did without fail Uh, and i'm very very proud of the team and and our partnership with the city and 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 all of the affiliates
0: well hats off to you for doing that how has your main business gone in the meantime
1: main business is good so so for listeners replay is a is a company as a technology company in chicago that's scaling a platform to help scale this, the, the transition to a circular economy. What that means for us, just to kind of debunked that a little bit or, or kind of break it down a little bit, is we we help companies with reuse. So you know, there's a lot of talk about recycling. Recycling has had its moment, and over the last 30 plus years, recycling has been able to get to about 8.6%. Of things that you throw away are actually recycled. Recycle is not working. And there's a lot of money in recycling. And so what we're saying is, how about reuse? Reuse actually has a business case. Reuse actually is way better than recycling. And it accomplishes the same in the sustainability goal, actually better. But why aren't people reusing things a lot more? And it turns out that the technology to do so is either absent in most cases or not equipped to power at, at the scale of the companies that we typically work with. So we, we, we build technology to help companies scale circular operations, but in particular, to help with reuse. And as some of your listeners might be aware of, two, two things kind of happened kind of right as COVID came in. The first is you had a, you had a very famous a letter to CEOs from Larry Fink at BlackRock that basically talked about how they were gonna be divesting in climate-risky businesses, and that they were encouraging asset managers like them to be investing in in climate-resilient business models and companies. So that was kind of a earthquake, if you will, in the sustainability world, because until that time, quite frankly, I felt like it was a few intrepid enterprises but everyone else was kind of a marketing play. And that was like, whoa, you know, Larry Fink, wow. And then the skies were orange. So, right, people might remember- um, Oh, I remember. (laughs) The West Coast that we got an unfortunate, incredibly unfortunate reminder of how this looming problem that seems theoretical on paper and and, um, politicians and scientists bicker about caused The most of the West Coast not to be able to go outside for a couple of weeks and breathe normal air. So we kind of came out of the COVID PPE experiment with a little bit of market tailwind because people start realizing, wow, if we're that fragile where a virus that's microns big can cripple the, the global supply chain and economy, what happens when we have big shifts in climate? We need to be doing more as companies. We need to be doing more as governmental organizations, and thus, that means like a business like Reaply is pretty primed to help those types of companies scale their net zero uh, goals. Um, and so, you know, we've had a we've had a we had a great year last year, um, and I say that with all the care that's needed because I understand intimately how many of my friends who are running great companies that they didn't have a good year. But we did, and, and, I, and I think the future is very bright because we in, you know, in the world have to scale a circular economy. It is an imperative. It is not an option. It is not like, well, that would be great if we could, no. In order for us to go on the way we're currently, we have to change the model and we have to have technology that helps us with that transition. And I'm super excited to be one of hopefully the leading providers to help businesses and organizations and consumers um, to that transition.
0: Well, you, you've laid that out in a very inspiring way, a call to action there. And your company focuses, as you said, on reuse, like sharing a piece of equipment or supplies uh, internal to an organization or between organizations. I'd be curious if you're, willing to take a step back and talk a little bit more about your vision of a circular economy, you know, broader than your mm. product right now. Like mm-hmm. what do supply chains need to look like? How local are they? What, what does it mean to be circular in that goal in state that we're headed towards?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So I'll start off with the the canonical definition. So the canonical view of the circular economy put forth by the Ellen MacArthur Foundation They're awesome. We're part of the Ellen MacArthur Foundation and lucky to be so. So it's a three-point definition. So the first point is an economy in which waste is designed out, which means you design products that that don't churn a lot, right? You design products to stay in circulation. So it's a, a design issue. The second portion of it is you keep materials in use as long as possible. That's reuse. Right. So if we have products in the first part of the definition that can be reused, then you need to keep them being reused. And then the third part of the the definition is to be able to thus you are able to regenerate natural systems. So the circular economy for is, is a new ish term, but really the concept is very old. That concept is industrial ecology. So in the actual world right, outside of materials. We don't, waste is not a concept. You don't go into nature and go, that's waste, right? There's no waste. There is a closed loop system. When men's, man, human started making tools, those tools, we haven't figured out how to have an ecology around. So the circular economy is really industrial ecology and trying to do that. So my my biggest vision even beyond Reaply, because no company can do everything, is the highest aspiration of the circular economy. And the highest aspiration of the circular economy is that you change the mindset. You change the mindset that you don't need to own anything. Businesses, me, you, we don't need to own anything. We just need to have access to things. It's not about ownership. It's about access. It's not about consumption. We don't need to consume things like a table. Well, we need to be able to use them. And so my highest aspiration of the circular economy is that we live out its intended vision, which is to push more access versus ownership and more use versus versus you know, short-term consumption. And there's a lot of parts to that. And there's a lot of things for that to be able to be the case at a global scale. But for me, a very, a very fundamental one is that we have to know about where all the things are. You can't circulate things and you don't know where there are. So what Wrigley is trying to do is trying to map out where the physical things are so that we can actually have a chance of moving them to the people who need them best and keeping them out of landfill.
0: Yes. Thank you for that uh, big picture vision in order to get there, I think you've got to have incentives that align people and organizations along that path. And you've been very thoughtful in your product design about that. So I'd be curious if you could share, you know, how, how you've done that and what have been some of the choices to make the incentives work?
1: Yeah. So one of the things early on, so being a scientist and Kind of seeing this problem firsthand, which is where I started the company in the lab, just seeing that we had surplus material and people next door could have used the stuff that we do. And, you know, I was kind of user number one, but as we kind of started the company, we do what hopefully most startups are doing, which is we talk to people. We talk to the users. We talk to folks like who I was a scientist. We talk to folks who manage people like me, the professors. We talk to administrators We talked to almost every stakeholder across this value chain in the academic research space. We actually published a lot of that work in Nature in 2017. And I think that that's on our website at repeat.com forward slash press. But what we learned was exactly what you said, which is people are busy. And how do you get someone who's busy to, to think about the planet, about being eco-friendly, about their own impact, about doing more good than negative. And so one way is you got to you got to be in people's face. You got to they got to you got to be known. So there are and I'm happy to go through those, but there are certain tricks and things that we do to make sure that people know about us at at, at an organization. But beyond that, we, we start when we talk to users, we thought we started thinking, well, these people now have to do something on behalf of their company to be more sustainable, that might not be in their job description, probably is not in their job description. So what can we do to incentivize the person when something's not in their job description? Incentivize them through cash, <laughs> through prices, through, through games. People like playing games, people like winning, turns out from a psychological perspective, people don't like losing, uh, people don't like being um, zero on a list of 10, right? People, there's a certain, especially in kind of organizations that we work in people like being helpful and, and winning and and seeming to be good so we use that kind of bedrock kind of human sentiment and human nature to just gamify the whole platform insofar as that as people are helping their organizations save waste and um, divert these items from landfill they can see right on the homepage how many points that attributes to they can see how they suck against their employees. And then each month we we uh, deliver a really cool prize for the first and second place winners of, of the partnership that we have. So it's you get green for being green. And, it, and it's something that uh, we're super proud of. And there'll be more games um, actually coming out because we want it to be we want it to be fun. It should be fun to think about how to uh, make sure your organization is uh, sustainable. It shouldn't be a chore and we don't want it to feel that way, ever.
0: Don't just listen, get engaged. Join our giving circle to support startup tech nonprofits. And who knows, the startup that you fund may be on Startups for Good one day. And internal to an organization, any reuse is economically beneficial. People, you know, the organization saves money. Correct. Uh, what I'm thinking about between organizations, which I think you facilitate as well, mm-hmm. how do the incentives work? Like how often are people renting and selling versus donating? And if they do donate, why do they donate?
1: Yeah, so one of the maxims that we have is that at, at one point, every single thing that a business procures will be liquidated. I'll you know, just pause on that. So if a business buys something, at one point in time, they're going to get rid of it, whether that's through, they literally are liquidated as a business, right? they, they exit, whether that's they sell it because they don't need the asset anymore, or the pro- program is over, they don't need it anymore, whether, they be, whether that asset or physical item becomes funked, doesn't work anymore, whatever the case is, things come in a business and they go out. The question we start thinking about is, hmm, when they go out, where they go out to? And again, just doing a lot of research, the ways that businesses, and that's called disposition. So the way that most companies liquidate or dispose of items is very unstructured. Almost horribly so. There is no like plan, and I won't use any of our clients' names or any clients I know about, but there's no like, document like this is how we do this except for you know scheduled chemicals and drugs that the, the federal government requires proper disposal but everything else is just kind of well we do IT that way we throw the couches over there we have a warehouse over here actually to kind of take your question in a different light more of the question wasn't the the business case it's like actually we have no structure here help us structure end of life of our assets so we can recover more value it can be a smoother process and so some of the options that we started thinking about are the obvious ones one can your item go to an organization who would need it the most meaning like a nonprofit, like a school like a 501c3 or a small and up-and-coming startup or small business who could reuse it in a very interesting way. Think of like an engine from some big machinery. That engine could be used in a very almost decor-like way where you could put like a glass, uh, a piece of glass on top of it and make it a coffee table. Right? There are all different kinds of ways that you can reuse things. If not, can it then go to a liquidation company who is more eco-friendly and sustainable and transparent? And if not, can it go to a responsible recycling or so-called R2 facility? So what we try to do with our customers is when an asset goes into the platform, they don't have to worry about it going to landfill. That's what we try to accomplish. Anything that goes in a replace platform, it's next home will not be a landfill. And, it, and if the next home is also still on replay, it will not go to a landfill. That's what we work really, really hard at. And, and so the business case actually is stronger because the, because the organization has goals outside of that bottom line that they're trying to achieve too, right? They're trying to achieve obviously net zero, but also they're trying to achieve, how can we stimulate more STEM education, more innovation, more creativity in our own community. How can we be a better community steward ourselves? And so this is a really easy way to donate back to the community and engage the community. So there's actually a lot of wins actually on the external exchanging side that in some in some, for some clients they outcompete the the financial wins on the internal reuse side.
0: So for those external opportunities How public is that? Can I just go to the website and see things Mm. that one of your clients wants to uh, give away or rent?
1: Yeah, not yet. (laughs) We are working on that. So the way that we started the company is we wanted to almost have a group of trusted partners, right? And so Reekly was this kind of bridge where we would bridge trust with organization A and we would bridge trust with organization B. We knew what those agreements were so thus we could broker A to B right to transact. We are thinking currently about how a small business who's not currently a Reapley customer can be able to find things that Reapley customers want to donate or sell or rent back into the community. And I would say in the next month or two, definitely before the end of this summer, there will be a way for businesses to to do that. So we're, we're currently thinking through the the last bits of product and and kind of legal innovation there, but um, soon to come for sure.
0: Well, I'm excited to see that. I was also curious, I I think the model is that you sell centrally to the business and then employees uh, learn about it and can start Uh using it. Does it ever happen Uh the other way around where an employee starts using it before the (laughs) the central office uh, signs on?
1: It it doesn't just because we typically have to have an agreement in place with the organization, and we have to have things that a a generally a typical employee couldn't have, couldn't give us. For instance, you know, we like to be you know integrated from a single sign-on perspective for user IDs and and passwords. So that that requirement already means that we have to be connected to central IT, And, and, and so there are some current things that we like to do. Do we, we have our own password, username and password system? But there are things that we prefer to do that require kind of a, a centralized purchase from the business. But what I will say, maybe to the spirit of your question, is that there are many cases in which an employee learned about Reaply, hit us up and said, hey, I can't purchase this. I can't make the decision, but I need this for my work and for my colleagues. I'm happy to you know, put you in touch with someone who's in procurement or sustainability or in IT or in facilities that I know, you could kind of convince them, right? So that's happened a lot. We actually launched um, something called the Reuse Initiative. Uh, you could view this at reaply.com forward slash reuse. And the the whole during during Earth Day this year, and we're we're currently still running it. And basically it, it had two prongs. The first prong was to just educate the market about how cool reuse is, how, when people sometimes say recycle, what they really mean is reuse. Um, and we decided to, I think we put together like a 30 page uh, free action plan. So if an employee was like, I like reuse, I like what Reaply is doing, or not even in any, any uh, other provider, they can download this action plan. It's just a slide deck on our site. And then they can go send this to their facilities manager or their procurement leader or their sustainability leader at their company and just let them operate the plan because we've seen this pattern of how to actually scale reuse. So we're just giving it out to the world. And then the second thing that kind of follows then is then, you know, we are a leader in this space. And so then people sometimes get in touch with us and say, hey, I, I can't figure out how to make a circular operation of my furniture or my supply chain or my manufacturing equipment or my CapEx. Or my IT peripherals, or our chemicals, or whatever it is, and we're like, oh my goodness, we've done that ten thousand times. Let us help you, you know. And so, so we we definitely encourage you know employees to to log on, go to replay.com and learn a little bit more about how they can potentially help with reuse of their company. Sometimes that's like just take our deck and just do it on your own, right? And then sometimes that's like, oh, you have a big company that's complicated. You need a technology to help operate this, you know, hit us up and we, we, we would love to partner with you. And then the second, and then the third prong was just to be super fun. And so essentially, if you take a picture of something that you've reused, whether at work or at home, um, and just hashtag it on any social media platform, either Reaply Earth Day or Reuse Initiative, we make a donation to the One Trillion Tree, and Tree uh, project. So, uh, so yeah, so we, we love, we love, we love talking to employees whether they're potential purchasers or not in fact i should mention in our mission statement we talk of employees as the second word empowering employees to save money and save the environment so we even though we sell to cut you know sell to um you know managers directors vps of things we love talking to the everyday employee about what they're doing because that's who we are our mission is to help
0: oh lots of cool things there yeah, my uh, one of my startups, Fix, We started with a bottom-up sales approach where individual people could choose to adopt the product, and it mm-hmm. was really powerful. You know, mm-hmm. even before waiting for you know central decision makers to go ahead. So, yeah, uh, we're, we're, maybe we're, one day. Uh,
1: yeah, we are thinking about we're thinking about the other end about you know getting people to see items first who aren't replayed. But yes, we have a self-serve, almost like a Slack. Um, like you know, you can download it and use it in some type of limited way. For sure, in our product roadmap, and we just closed our Series A a couple of months ago. Give us six nine months, we'll we'll probably have something out for. <laughs> for oh, cool! You heard it here first, that. folks. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. So so speaking of fundraising, you you had alluded earlier uh, to your employees, you know, getting a lot of motivation out of the mission and serving your community. I'm curious your experience in raising the Series A. How motivating, how important, or how did it impact the, the fundraise being a mission-driven organization?
1: Extraordinarily validating in so many sectors. You know, you know quite frankly, it, it always makes me slightly emotional, the fundraise and what we've been able to do so far. We, we fought for so long with this company for four years, horribly underfunded in my mind, for the market opportunity we're talking maybe the biggest opportunity on the planet, quite frankly. I, I'm, I'm happy. I'm at Gary at Ripley. If someone wants to tell me there's a bigger opportunity than the circular economy, happy to debate with you, <laughs> but you know, just horribly unfunded. And, and then, and then, you know, I am a black entrepre- tech entrepreneur. I'm very aware of the statistics of VC dollars that have floated to people that look like and sound like me. So to get, External validation on our mission, external validation on the market, external validation on who I am as the CEO and co-founder is quite emotional for our team and, and myself. And to get that from absolute world-class investors who've done what we're trying to do before, who've been founders, who've, who've IPO a company, who sold that company after IPOing is a cherry, you know, a big cherry on top. It was one of the coolest moments. And fundraising is obviously is not an end to itself, right? It just furthers the journey. But we, we like to celebrate wins and it was for sure a win. And I won't forget, even though it was in a virtual world and we were on the Zoom and celebrating, I, I won't really ever forget that moment with the team, sharing that with the team, for sure.
0: Well, congratulations on, on raising that Series A. Thank you. Uh, I think for all types of founders, I mean, you've highlighted a particular challenge for minorities and underrepresented founders. Uh, and I think for all founders, there's there's a lot of no's along the way.
1: Absolutely. Hundreds.
0: But <laughs> I'm curious if you could share how how you handle that.
1: Yeah, I, I, I think that is a, one of the the questions that I still think about as optimizing my reaction to disappointment. I would say that when I went to the fundraise, I'll talk, I sent a, a letter, a note to some of my most trusted mentors who are my mind luminaries. They are, they've either done what I'm trying to do or they've already done it and they've done it better or they just know me, right? And I sent a note basically saying the same question you just asked me. And I overwhelmingly got, we're behind you. We think you could crush this. So I kind of went to my fundraise knowing the summer from George Floyd and everything that happened last summer and COVID. But I, I went in thinking, you know, yes, why not us? Why not me? And I expected to hear lots of no's. And I had a process. So I had all my emails, I had my investor CRM, I had all my decks, I had all my material. So I treated it almost dispassionately like a process. I tried to not wait anyone's no. I just thought they're mistaken and keep moving. And I was able to talk to over 130 investors in my fundraise and, um, and we were able to get it closed. So I don't think there's a lot of magic there. I think. For me, at least, it was just having the confidence. And sometimes that takes people who believe in you just repeating their belief. Um, But then also just being very prepared. And I I thought I was pretty prepared for our fundraise.
0: 130. I I think for some people that may be a surprisingly high number, but I I don't think it's unusual. Um, I know
1: a lot of people now. (laughs) yeah. Yeah. And it, it takes and, a and, lot of meaning. And, and, and when we and, and when we when we close the note, when we close the round, to some of their credit, they sent me an email. They saw the announcement on LinkedIn or wherever. They sent me a note saying, "Congrats, Gary, we were wrong." So that's just a wow. show.
0: Interesting.
1: Not all hundred, but a good hand, good more than a handful did. And quite frankly, the handful that I kind of cared about, and wow. uh, I think that goes to show that no one knows. So the real confidence of what you're doing has to be internal as the CEO founder. It cannot be, it cannot be with this person who hurt my business for 30 minutes things. They don't know. They, they've not been wrestling with it for four year, four years. They've not been talking to the same customers. They've not been reading the same white papers. They've not been writing the same white papers. You know. So there, So again, that was validation, not just of like, yes, you're wrong, ha ha ha. It was validation that if you do the work and you have confidence, that's, that's, you are the leader. That's another, you know, that's another common attribute with science and actually startups is that there, there is a realization towards the end of your PhD that you realize in the whole world, in the whole world, I am the expert on this small slice of knowledge. There's no one else. There's no one else. I published that paper. I published those papers right? I am the expert. People ask me to come speak about a certain topic. Similarly, I think that founders, at least for me, we, we lose our sense of confidence and we don't, we need to start realizing that we are at the frontier. We are pushing and we are some of the most knowledgeable people on this topic in the world. Um, not the investor, not your mother, not the people who are behind you or, or telling you no. So I think having that confidence is so important. And and I think founders who are probably more successful than others have a certain undergirding of confidence that they kind of carry around, but I think it's all based in preparation.
0: Oh, I love that frame that that you are the expert. You've been the one talking to customers and you know, the product, you know, the company, I love that frame. Um, and then if also, you are,
1: or you relatively are, right? You yeah. definitely know more than the person on the other side of the table,
0: <laughs> right? Right. And I'm also fascinated by this idea that you got emails, people saying that they were wrong, and what what changed their mind? Just the fact that another investor invested. Yeah. Wow, interesting. Another,
1: another investor invested, and then we had you know an incredible syndicate of very well known. Uh, corporate investors, a couple of VCs and uh, institutional VCs. And so I think they're just reflecting on like, could I have been that wrong? Hmm. Yeah. Well, I see all these names here. I must've been, I, I, our round was definitely around. If you were a, a VC, you wanted to be a part of once it was constructed. But again, once when you, when you're just talking about around and is pitching you, it's just like, uh, do I want to focus on this deal? You know, they're doing some other calculation. There's a little, there's of course, a lot of lemmingness, right? And being an investor, as soon as you see another one, you re, a person you re, you respect do a deal, you're thinking, I need to get a part of that deal. That person, that investment house is smart. So I think it, I think it's a little bit of a little of that. You know, I I, I at least appreciated someone even following their sword to do that. Actually, so yeah.
0: it seems unusual.
1: It's very. It did not happen in my seed round, right <laughs> or yeah. ever, or ever since that point. <laughs>
0: I also wanted to go back to something you said earlier about the motivation for raising your seed round, or something about the confidence to do it, mm-hmm. came in re- reaction to the death of, of George Floyd, and mm-hmm. I'd love if you could say more about that.
1: Yeah, so we, so the timeline is we raised our seed round um, in uh, let's say February twenty twenty. George Floyd's unfortunate death happened at the end of May of twenty twenty. And in about August of 2020, I start thinking about raising a Series A. And I took the, the Labor Day weekend off to personally reflect, right? Doing my own diligence. I'd already talked to, I should say, about eight kind of investors who could lead our Series A. So I, I wanted to kind of frame it like, are we, are we worthy of this? You know, I don't know. These are floating uh, pedestals to be on. And overwhelming, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, okay. So I, I reflected that weekend, I remember. And in my reflection, one of the things that I didn't, I didn't feel so confident was, is that I was kind of internally hurting from the, from the death of Mr. Floyd. And obviously, you know, I don't know him and, and his story, but it was more so of the sentiment that affected me. And I didn't know if I could literally be told as a black man in a space that there's, in Chicago, I know three of us, four of us that, that are of a city of three and a half million that are in, our, in my same position. I was like, I don't know if I could be told no 100 times, you know, by quite frankly, white men. Um, I just, I don't know if I have the capacity to do that with a smile, represent the company the, the way that I want to, And um, meanwhile, I'm also on so many panels about diversity in tech, diversity in fundraising. So there's like this yin yang where I'm like being on panels, prescribing solutions, being asked to be on them. On the other hand, I'm living a a war of confidence internally myself. So that's what I struggle with. And I I didn't wanna be rejected because I felt like we were already being rejected systematically um, that summer and it really took my kind of very personal network to say you can do this man what are you talking about and if you don't do it it's okay but if you do do it we're going to be behind you 100% no matter what happens and i thought you know well well crap i should do it <laughs> you know and the thing that gets me up in the morning is we have a ticking time bomb you know what we're, what we're doing at reely we're not selling hot dogs i like to say you know, we're really trying to help keep the planet in a way that we can live and prosper in the future. And so I thought our vision and mission is too important. I have a great network and we have great traction and we'll see what the market thinks.
0: Well, thank you for sharing that inside story of momentary crisis of confidence, but I'm glad you went through with it. And obviously to great results, The company seems to be doing very well today.
1: Yeah, we are. I think every founder is always very prescribed and and small, at least the ones I know about where we are. I think we are learning fast, is what I'll say, is that we, we are engaged with a lot of amazing customers and partners. And it's so fascinating, the things that we're figuring out. And I'm extraordinarily excited about the next year for us, the, at least the, the year that I can see coming. And uh, so exciting things on the horizon. I am very honored to be working with the, our current new partners um, that are part of our A. And I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm excited about the work that we'll be able to do with a lot of the brands that people know and, and trying to help them be more sustainable while also helping them be more profitable. And I think that's exciting.
0: Green for being green. I love it. <laughs> Thank you for your inspiring words uh, just then and throughout this conversation. I really appreciate it. How, how can people follow you or the company online?
1: So I'm Gary, G A R R Y, Cooper Jr, Jr. Um, on every social media platform. So just two R's in the Gary, G A R Y, the Cooper Jr. Um, that's me personally. Reaply is just at Reaply, R H E A P L Y, Inc. I C. I sorry, INC on all the social media platforms. So follow me. I talk a lot about sustainability and also just other cool things. And then follow uh, Reaply. And we, we try to highlight not just the work that we're doing, but some other really cool startups and established companies and what they're doing and sustainable movement. Um, so follow us. My mother and grandmother would love it if you followed me and I would too. <laughs> so please do. <laughs>
0: do it for your family okay do it for moms all right thank you so much appreciate it absolutely be well if you liked what you heard today on the podcast be sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast player and please give us a rating and review the reviews help others find us you can follow us on twitter and instagram and you can follow me on linkedin be sure to visit our website startupsforgood.com. That's startupsforgood, all run together, no spaces, dot com. If you are inspired today and wanna to join our online community or our giving circle, please do so on our website.